Hi, I'm Dave Moss, and this is Open Door Philanthropy. I was born in 1982, which is the same year that Anita and Jerry Zucker founded a company called Intertech Investments. The daughter, Andrea, is a good friend of mine, and we both live in Washington, D.C. A year or two ago, I watched Andrea give a passionate presentation about her father, Jerry, who seemed like a wonderful man. He unfortunately passed away from brain cancer in 2008. Since then, Intertech has been run by Andrea's mother, Anita. At one point, Intertech owned Hudson's Bay Company, which means Anita is the only woman in that company's 348-year history to have chaired their board. As of this interview, she is the 629th richest person in the world and the 215th richest in the U.S., with an estimated wealth of $3.7 billion. And she's the only billionaire currently living in South Carolina. I traveled down to Charleston, which is a lovely town, uh, to interview her about her philanthropy. When I arrived, all Anita knew from Andrea was that I would be there at 2 p.m. and that I was very funny, which goes to show that um, the secret to getting an interview with a billionaire is uh, being good friends with their daughter or possibly being funny. I'm not sure which. After I explained that it would be a podcast about philanthropy, and then explained what a podcast was, she seemed very excited and eager to speak about all the good work she's doing in South Carolina and beyond. What follows is a long, intimate chat we had about philanthropy. This was one of my personal favorite interviews to date, and as you listen, I think you'll hear why. Enjoy. be with you. I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. I was born and raised there and um, I went off to college at the age of 17 in Gainesville, Florida. Um, graduated from the University of Florida, moved to a very small town in Florida called Palatka, Florida. Palatka? Yes. Very, very small town, and I'm Jewish, and there were 10 Jewish people in the town. And I was married, my husband worked at the paper mill, I taught school, and our first child was born there, and when he was three months old, we left. And we came right here to Charleston, South Carolina, where I have been for nearly 40 years. So, the math on that doesn't add up, because you're clearly 29 years old. <laughs> um, but we'll move on from that. Uh, your, uh, your childhood in Florida, um, what was that like? Did you, um, you, know, you mentioned that the town you moved to had very few Jews, but did you, uh, growing up before that, did you have a Jewish community? So I grew up in Jacksonville. I had a Jewish upbringing. My parents happened to be Holocaust survivors, and they got to America in 1949. My sister was actually born in a displaced persons camp in Germany after the war. Wow. And, and so, yeah, I had a very Jewish upbringing. I had parents who came to America with nothing, who didn't even know the English language, and so they had to learn. Uh, the good news is... They're amazing because they survived. My mom is still living. 
She's 94 years old, and I have learned so much about being a survivor, and she taught me those skills. And yes, we were very much raised in a Jewish community, went to Sunday school, went to services. All of my life had amazing teachers along the way, and um, was introduced to my husband because his parents were my religious school teachers. His parents taught your Sunday school? Taught me Sunday that's school and Hebrew school. Yes, isn't that great? I was 14 years old. <laughs> no, I wasn't 14 when I got married, but I was 14 when I was introduced to my future husband. Yes, you are in the South, but that doesn't mean we all do things that way. There you go. <laughs> um, the, uh, so, the, uh, as you may know, Jews are disproportionately uh, philanthropic. And uh, one of my um, hypotheses on that is that it does have to do with how we're brought up. Uh, was philanthropy a part of your upbringing? So, we didn't have the money to be phil philanthropic with wealth, mm -hmm. but we had the ability and were taught values. And we're also taught that we could give our time. And by giving time and energy, we were doing as much as we could do that was really equal to philanthropy, in my opinion, in many ways. It just, you know, it's wealth, wisdom, and work. We could give our wisdom. We could give our work. We were taught to do that whenever we could because we didn't have the wealth to give. And, um, and I think those were great values to learn, and I think I've carried that with me my entire life. Well, the first time, I was very active in a youth group in my synagogue, mm -hmm. and so we raised funds, and we went on conventions, and so we we sold, we would make things and sell them, like we made beanies for people to wear on their heads, and we sold them. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't make a lot of money, but we made enough to help um, supplement the cost or subsidize the cost of going to the conventions that we used to go to as kids. But it was really a lot of fun, and I was an officer in one of my youth groups growing up, and so that that was sort of the beginning of some leadership opportunities, and um, and then real philanthropy began, I want to say, more when I lived here and began getting involved with the Jewish Federation and sisterhoods at the synagogue. We gave charity every week at Sunday school. I forgot that we did that. So every week you'd bring your nickels, dimes, pennies, whatever you had in the sadaka box, exactly. Karen Ami is what it was called in our conservative synagogue. Karen Ami, and it's just the name of an organization. Okay, and I was conservative. And so we always certainly put change in the box. And, and so, yes, I mean, I've always been involved in some way, even if it was pennies. I would say first my mother, um, and then secondly, we probably learned about it in Hebrew school, and I had both my father-in-law and mother-in-law, and I have been surrounded by lots of rabbis in my life, and um, I've just learned so much from all of them, and when we moved here, and my children were old enough, and they went to a Jewish day school, we really had to get involved in giving, and um, and the tzedakah piece was really important because then our kids got involved in giving as little kids. 
So they continued what we started with because that's how we began. But the neat thing is we also took them to do other kinds of things where they learned service and giving, um, like going to a homeless shelter. We went with our Jewish community with our synagogue members, but you know only a small group would go at a time. And we, we brought our children with us because we wanted them to understand what it was all about and how we were helping to make a difference in the lives of people. And of course it took funds to go and buy the food and to go buy whatever we needed to bring the days that we were doing that kind of service. So we, we did a lot of philanthropy where my kids were included along the way. We, we, uh, well, I did an activity once uh, with, next, uh, with your daughter and I was where we, um, we asked everybody just one question, do you remember your first gift? Uh, and, um, have you, and then I made videos Of course, she didn't show it to me. Oh, really? No. <laughs> she did. She did. Uh, she did share it on, uh, on Facebook and such. Uh, but uh, yeah. I don't remember exactly. But I, I vaguely remember that her father brought her to uh, some sort of auction. I know exactly what you're going to say. All three of our kids were involved in that. Really? I yeah. just wanted to confirm that that was an accurate story. It's a very accurate <laughs> story, and we filled a van with toys. And then we, we told them once the man was loaded that those toys were not for you, by the way. <laughs> we are going now to an orphanage, and you're going to meet some children that have no family, that don't have the kinds of things that you have, and you bought these toys for them. So you're going to get to give these toys to these children. And that was the first time, that was even before the homeless shelter. Okay, that we did that and we took them. So that's why I'm saying a lot of what my husband and I did, we couldn't give big dollars in those early early years, but we could give in other ways. And we were able to buy these things that our children selected. And then we, we taught them so many lessons by having them make the deliveries because they didn't realize about needy children and how many needy children exist in the world. And it was the beginning of being able to teach them some values about making a difference. Well, my mom never had a lot of money to give. Sure. She's worked hard to make the money she has, and my dad with her, but he passed away 28 years ago. So together they didn't have the opportunity when they had the time to be able to do more, to do more because my dad got sick. However, yes, I, I've been, I had a husband, and together we built this business. Really, he built it, and I just got to become a part of it. And we really learned about the impact we could make by giving gifts. And, um, you know, working on focus was really important, trying to figure out where we wanted to put our money. Um, and so that was an important conversation as well. But 
something that drives us is called tikkun olam, repair of the world. And so we're very much driven by that. And I've even brought it into our business and tried to create a corporate culture around repair of the world. And so a lot of our giving um, philanthropically revolves around things that can do that in so many ways because if I'm going to give someone education, I want to give them the opportunity to learn and access to that opportunity to learn because that's the only way you get out of being in a bad place. I want to create change. I want to start with babies, and I am. I'm doing that kind of work now. So to me, that's really important. So education is probably my largest focus. And within that focus of education, there's a lot of health and human needs that come along with that. Um, there's a lot of support for science, technology, engineering, and math. And then there's also support for the arts. And a lot of the arts that I like to support, besides some of the performing arts and the visual arts and the things of that nature, are also taking the arts into the classroom. Um, because to me, you've got to keep some arts around for children because it really drives innovation and creativity. Absolutely. And so I really believe very strongly in those areas. And it brings a lot to you. Yeah, it gives you skills. Absolutely, there's no question. And my daughter took drama as well and appeared in many shows in different theaters here in this community. And you should. I don't know if she does, but the fun thing is making the time. And when she was in high school, she asked me to be in a play with her. And so there was a wonderful gentleman who had worked on Broadway and who also had a ballet school, and he used to direct plays. And so I decided, yes, I'll do it with you. And we were both in Fiddler on the Roof together. And it was really a lot of fun. Um, yeah, that, that was, that was <laughs> the very that I did that show in high school. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, so I did uh, a couple questions on things that you, um, that you just said. Uh, I saw support for technical colleges, magnet schools, business education. I believe you taught elementary school. That's right. Um, education is a very broad topic. My parents are professors, um, but they, but what they do is very different than teaching elementary school or arts education or business education and other things. So how do you? Because uh, you want to say I'm going to support education. Mm -hmm. You could go. You could, no matter how much money you have, you run out of money pretty quick supporting education. So am I focused? Not yeah. enough, obviously. Okay. I don't necessarily think one has to be niche focused, right? Right. But you're choosing a lot of different things. What I'm interested in is how do you choose something to support? So there's one thing that I've worked on from the beginning, and it's called the Tri-County Cradle to Career Collaborative. It's modeled out. Tri-County Cradle to Career Collaborative. Yes, yeah, so it's cradle birth to getting a young person into a career. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's an area of focus for me. And um, it's collective impact. Uh, so you find like-minded people with like goals, with like things they want to achieve, and we have put together an amazing group of people. It took, how many years have we been doing this? About eight years now, okay? But what's interesting is that we're just at the point we're releasing a report about what's happening in our schools. We have four school districts in the three counties in which I'm involved. And our schools are not good, okay? The results are not going to be pretty. And so what we do is we convene people around like interests, and we're bringing a group together working on babies. So we have a group of four hospitals who all deliver babies, and we are getting ready to start training nurses who will be doing an assessment of every baby that's born in this region and then offering the family a home visit so that they can guide them towards any help they might need or just visit with them because they want the home visit. So I'm really hoping it's a way of, of helping with a leg up for some of our children. We have so many children that live in poverty and who are not successful because we have some very failing schools. Then the next level, we've brought together a group through United Way as our partner, um, convened around early literacy. And, and I put funds into these things, okay, because I believe in them. And the early literacy, we are now providing professional development for children from three years old through third grade to the teachers that are working with those age groups. We are, we've got um, some professionals from actually my alma mater, the University of Florida. They developed an incredible early literacy program. And in the state of Florida, they've begun to narrow the achievement gap. So why not select from something that's working? And so we brought those people here, introduced them to our school districts. The school districts are very happy with the work that they do, and the school districts are helping to fund, along with funding we bring in from um, different foundations, from people like me, into the, that work. Then we have a group that brought and reviewed algebra. Algebra is like the place in our pipeline where kids get stuck. They can't get through algebra. So again, we brought in a... We, we, oh, it's a hard one for me, too. It's not my favorite subject. But we vetted all these different programs. We used um, nine college and university um, deans of math and science. We used um, supervisors who specialize in math curriculum to be at this table, including a Boeing executive who had retired who said, I'll chair it for you. And so we bring these people together, and they pick a program. And again, I'm lucky it was University of Florida. It's called Algebra Nation. It's a system of videos that's an add-on to what the teacher's already teaching in the classroom. But Disney helped us develop it at the University of Florida. They've helped with the videos. They've helped with scripts and helped select teachers that were especially um, talented in theater and drama and could get the message across and a diverse group of people that could teach and be viewed by other kids and you can get it on a cell phone of any kind a flip phone you can even access this and then there are activities that they've created as well so it's a supplement for the teacher but it's a fun supplement where the kids can actually go home and access what's being taught through Algebra Nation. And it's being done, it's, they're starting to sell it now nationally. It's in New York, it's in Michigan, and it's in Florida, and now it's here. Um, very interesting. You mentioned a few different, uh, what I would call, um, intermediary 
the, the, the Tri County Collaborative and the, uh, the Tri United Way uh, Federation. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like that um, you know, with this, this program at the University of Florida, you didn't, Algebra Nation did not approach you and ask you for a gift, right? No, they didn't ask me, but Boeing has given them a gift. Right, but, but you are giving to larger entities that then work with. Sure, and I've, I'm supporting a center at the University of Florida that specializes on the child from zero to five. So I do have a center named for me, and their area of focus is at that age, because what they've done is create tools that can actually change the child's life from zero to five, and they're working with us too, and they're on that committee as well. They are working in this state as volunteers helping out in that piece of it in our, what we call our kindergarten and, and third grade readiness programs. Um, through Cradle to Career, they, they help and they bring their tools. They're not getting paid yet, but the other center at Florida is getting paid um, for providing the professional development and the algebra nation. And so I've given their, um, I do bigger things, like at the Medical University of South Carolina, I, uh, after my husband passed away of a brain tumor, I created a chair in brain tumor education and research because I wanted more research done in particular in the type of brain tumor that he had, a glioblastoma. And, uh, and so from that, then we created the next piece of that and it became the Zucker Institute of Applied Neuroscience. And it was an opportunity for the doctors and nurses and students, whoever's participating from the medical university, um, to become innovative and creative and begin to create devices that can be used, whether in surgery or however they're going to use them, to change the life of a patient. So we have that, but then what we've also done is we, we did, this is a public-private partnership because we have a for-profit side to help them push devices to commercialization. Great. And so it's been a really, really interesting you project. Yeah, so, I mean, eventually, and we can put it back, too. Right, but exactly, and they're using that for those. Absolutely. And, and, yes, but what's exciting is this is great for the doctors, it's great for the hospital, and it's great for us because I get a different kind of a return on investment on the, the nonprofit side. I get the feelings and the goodness and the good news and the good work that I see because I get to go in there. I've been in surgeries. I've gotten to actually observe two brain surgeries. I've observed a back surgery. Um, for me, it's like, wow, because they're showing me the tools and the devices they're creating. It's very rewarding. And so that is one kind of reward where um, it's, a different kind of return on investment. It doesn't have to be monetary. It's a return because I'm helping people get longer lives. Mm -hmm. Okay, especially with the brain tumor, the glioblastoma now, we have many patients that are living three and four years. And originally, oh my goodness, I've known people that have lived a month, three months. They can treat you. They can. And there are now new methods for treatment that are, are actually helping to extend, but my husband got this 10 years ago. These treatments didn't exist then. And so now they're doing a lot of immunotherapy kinds of treatments. So I really am getting to learn the best from best and brightest people and being educated about 
all kinds of neurological issues. And as an aging person in a population of people that are aging, the neurological issues are really impactful. Um, at these different phases, I'm watching my mom at 94 with the beginnings of some dementia and some Alzheimer's coming into play. But now because we have our Alzheimer's expert and I sit on this board, I get to be educated and I get to truly understand more about the disease and what are the ways we younger people can work to try to avoid yes getting these kinds of things in our life okay? I don't either I don't want a neurological sure I don't want a movement disorder I don't you know so what can we do to help ourselves and Yes, they are. I have many people on the evaluation committee who know all about them, and that's I sent that stuff over to them to get that feedback. It's one of the great things about having a large committee. That's great. You don't need to know everything, right? When smaller family foundations, that's one of my, um, and the individual giving them my daily ways. But um, uh, I, so he, uh, they set up the center where they give young grants, the starter grants to young researchers in a way that they, because they, this guy used to run NIMH, so he okay. knows exactly what they want to see. So Brain and Behavior Research Foundation grantees, on average, go on to receive 900% the grant amount from National Institute of Health, which is a very large return on investment. Mm -hmm. For profit, when you worked in, yeah. in the money-making space, if you were able to get a 900% return on something, you'd, be pretty, you'd probably want to invest more money in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we're also doing that kind of research at our medical university, mm -hmm. where they're taking people and using MRIs, for example, and showing them movies and showing them different things that cause different things to happen in their brain so they can see, so what does that cause your brain to do? What are you feeling? What is it making you think? And they're having a conversation. You're in the MRI. They're doing these different things to you, but you're not having it because you have a brain tumor. Do you understand what I'm mm -hmm. saying? So they're using it for the psycho kinds of things, the psychological issues and things to try to understand what is happening inside your brain as you're being impacted by these different kinds of um, 
things that are happening in the world. Well, I guess my, my question for you is how are you making sure that whether it's in the medical area or in the education area, that you are finding and supporting the, the, the most innovative and efficient ideas? Well, I may not be all the time. However, I, I, I look at what's being created. I do want to see some kind of metrics. It doesn't have to be a lot. But when I, I sat and I listened yeah, to, can to it can be hard in those, but I did sit and listen to a presentation on glioblastomas, for example. So I'm now up on what our medical university is doing. What are the different clinical trials that are in place? What drugs are being used today? What kinds of surgery are they doing? When do they do a second surgery if that's necessary? And I actually know someone now who's about 24 months out who just had a second resection of a tumor that began to come back. And he is now in one of the clinical trials where they're creating a, out of a virus an immunotherapy. And he's a recipient. He doesn't, I don't know if he knows what's in the virus he's being given. But they're testing it and they're figuring it out. So if I see progress, I'm getting a report that will show me how many months are people, your average patients, living now? To me, that's an important thing to look at. I'm not going to get the exact details, but I am starting to see a difference. And then I have another group in Florida where I've left a legacy gift to a brain center at the University of Florida, and they brought 13 people from Duke University, including an amazing neuro-oncologist who runs the brain this is where center. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Okay, that's great. That's great. I know Duke pretty well because two of my children got into Duke and chose not to go there, including Andrea. Mom went to work there after I was applying to colleges. Okay. Yes, but Andrea did get in, and she and so did my son Jonathan. But they chose not to go. No, but she went to Penn. Can't complain. No. She yeah. made the choice that she wanted, sure. and they both spent time on sure. the campus and made and the decision. They're great. And, you know, so I am learning from that group as well, all about that university, what kind of work are they doing in brain tumor research. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to be involved in helping them put together a large symposium because it's a bigger school with more money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm doing work with them. However, I have introduced them to my people up here. Because if there are opportunities for collaboration, why not? Yeah, right? With a bigger institution that has more options. And the good news is one of our neuro-oncologists here trained at Duke with the neuro-oncologist who is now at University of Florida running their brain center. So they know each other, and that's good. And when opportunities arise that they can collaborate, they do. And Florida has the ability to collaborate with much larger institutions like University of San Francisco and yes, absolutely. a variety around the country on what they're doing. And so I'm really excited. The big trick, and this is something I think about all the time, right? Because all the, the people who send me proposals, for the most part, sometimes we get proposals from, we've, we've reviewed proposals for Save the Children mm -hmm. uh, and some other large groups. It's grant proposal writing is hard. Even if you're at the top level, they still want oh, feedback. And even if you're the best in the world, if you can get feedback, you'll, that's why you're the best in the world, right? Because you get feedback and you listen to it. Um, but I, but the, so um, I guess my, uh, the next question would be, if there are folks in the Charleston area, right, uh, who have an idea that maybe they've already started or they at least haven't, they're looking for funding uh, for an idea that uh, potentially could significantly improve the schools or uh, lead to some sort of medical advancement, one of the things that you've just stated that you're interested in supporting, 
right? And we're not going to like put your email address up and no. you know, start getting emails from these folks. And I understand. I don't accept proposals. I don't accept open proposals either. You, you can't. You get too many, and that's I get them every day. Yeah, I get. No, I get. <laughs> I get one or two. It. Yeah, I get one or two unsolicited mm -hmm. proposals every single day. Yeah. I'm nowhere near as famous as you are. No, but I get um, them every day too. And um, and now the podcast is increasing the number that I get, right? And I also get them. Will you please introduce me to the guests that you okay. have? Okay. So gonna, this is going to start with you now. Well, my question is, how would you like them? Assuming it's an idea that, right, if all that you might fund, right? How are they? How should they? They could either come through you or through my daughter, for example, because mm -hmm. she can. I think that's a great way to do it. If they think it's worthwhile, then they're going to come to me. And I mean, I was in this. Well, if it's, if it's really worthwhile, I would rather it come from her than from a stranger because I'm I'm more likely to listen if she thinks it's worth my listening to, okay? And the hard part, like someone approached me here about something that I've never heard of, I don't know anything about, would it make a difference? It has the ability to possibly really, really, really change vision in our forest schools for their children, okay? A particular test that is not typically done today. Okay, and there's one doctor here in town that actually knows how to do this, but so far nobody's been able to take that and run with it. Okay, I saw him last night by accident. I saw this person. I said, oh, I've heard from the Sherpa about your method. I know about your methods because my children, you know, we've grown up with you. You were their eye doctor when we were growing up. Um, he said, well, I'm happy to talk to that person because I have an interest. And he's getting closer to retirement, so maybe now he really can do something if he truly has a method that is going to change the way our poorest children view things and see things that might be able to allow them to learn. If, because we have so many issues, we don't know which is the worst issue for our youngest children here. And, I mean, it's that bad, okay? And... For these folks who have these ideas, and it's just, uh, a lot of times they have this idea, right? And, that, and to me, that's enough, right? Uh, and to, to, it's not a Jewish podcast, but, but Moses had vision, and that's basically the only thing he had. Right? He needed Aaron and Joshua and Miriam to get to get all the way to this. Absolutely, and it does take a team sometimes. And the, I have not met a whole lot of people that have great vision and a great idea and a really good, innovative approach to solving a social problem, and who are also very good fundraisers. Those skills don't seem to line up very often. When they do, that guy is gang, it's going to be gangbusters success, right? Yes. Um, but uh, often, and there I'll give you a couple and things that have happened to me often. So Nexus, that your daughter and I are both members of, has a uh, a non-solicitation policy, right? Which I would call a common sense policy. Don't go to a conference and start asking people for money at the conference. <laughs> it's not going to work. That's not how you fundraise, right? Um, obviously. Given the nature of, uh, and Nexus even brags about this on the website, that they've created philanthropy, right? So obviously gifts are being made. Someone solicits at some point, right? And then what that does, you, you meet somebody at the conference, you exchange information, you have a couple nice co conversations. Uh, when I ask for money, I like to make sure it's on the, it's that I've met with a person at least half a dozen times in person That's great. before I ask for money. I ask for large gifts also. And I, if, I was, if we were doing small dollar fundraising, I might not be that intense about it. I'd do both, mm -hmm. just because I have to, okay? Um, I should start with the small dollar stuff. Yeah. But, but the neat no, thing too, to is that. being an influencer mm -hmm. and being able to inspire others that's to give. And I mean, that's important to me too. 
Well, to add the last nexus, there's a young guy with a, that I know who has a business, uh, and um, yeah, he was talking to somebody, uh, another guy from Nexus, who I happen to know is a, is a big-time investor, and invests in exactly this type of business. And uh, my friend comes up to me and he says, hey, I was talking to that guy, I know you know him. He asked, you know, he said he likes my business, and he asked me to send him, like, if I could send him my deck. And I'm like, great. That sounds wonderful. He's like, well, I want to ask you because I know that this is non-solicitation policy. I'm not sure if I should send it. And I'm like, well, if you're not sure that you should send it, you're not the right person to be doing the fundraising for your asset. This is an investor who asked you for his deck. One, you, even if you are not allowed to send it, <laughs> even if the rule, the blanket rule, or like, we're going to be banned from Nexus for life for sending this deck, you still send it. An investor asked you for your fundraising. And how passionate are you about your project? Because I think that shows whether you're passionate or not. If you don't send it, there's no passion well, or not enough passion. I also think that they, you know, if people didn't grow up around well and you don't understand how philanthropy works, they can be timid about it. And they can, mm -hmm. they, you know, you can put your foot in your mouth in this space pretty easily. And, you know, he doesn't want to get banned from Nexus for life. They don't really, I don't, my, one of my criticisms is they, they should explain the solicitation policy a little bit better. Because obviously, right, this is a philanthropy conference. If, it, if we're for really non-solicitation, we can never solicit each other ever. There's no point in us ever getting together. Right. <laughs> and and honestly, so when the conference is over, okay. then you can do whatever you want to do. So. Absolutely. Yeah, but I would say that they should, that Nexus could come out and say, like, you know, we encourage you to have these relationships, right? We could even have trainings on how to do this stuff. Exactly. Um, but, that, but you get, when it, once it becomes to the, I'm going to actually ask for money, this is a big step for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Like they'll, you know, the networking, connections, advice, one of the old pieces, uh, one of the first things I learned as a professional fundraiser uh, was that if you want money, you ask for advice. If you want advice, you ask for money. Very <laughs> good, very good. I do find that is the, so that's, uh, you have to get to the six meetings somehow, right? I was hoping to pick your brain about this, I was hoping to talk to you about that. And the key is to actually want their advice. <laughs> People can sense, you know, that you're just blowing smoke. I imagine that probably happened to you. It happens a lot. <laughs> but somebody told me something that was really great. I loved it. I'm sitting in a room of people who are there because they're going to fundraise for our university. And one of the new young people that joined our group decided that his professor had taught him something really special. And he said, you know, while you're here, I want you to learn, then earn, and then return. And that's a really cool concept. You learn from your school, then you get the ability hopefully to earn, and then you have the ability as an alum to support the institution that gave you that foundation. So I loved the saying, so I just thought I would have to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be impressive if I could just, if I'm doing the Latin right now. Um, it's, it's really good. Um, exadio, compario, convocor. That's great. I don't, I don't know a lot of Latin. I, most of my Latin are all school mottos. Okay. <laughs> That's good. My high school was uh, Ciencia es Potestas. Knowledge is power. Which is another oh, one that I like. That's a very good one. Um, yeah, no, it, it absolutely Why education? Is. Knowledge is power. Um, one of my, and I, this quote I don't remember exactly, but the, in the Once and Future King, uh, Merlin gets some advice that when you're ever in a bad mood 
or you don't know how to deal with the world, learn something. Because <laughs> you'll feel more powerful and it's the only thing that can, and even if it's, even if you learn, it has nothing to do with why you feel bad. Yes, and you need to learn every day. I'm learning every new day things day. from you. So yes, every day is a new day to learn, and just because a person's graduated or finished and gotten their piece of paper, learning doesn't end. It goes on for life. I'm uniquely aware of this. Good. <laughs> Me too. I was raised by a couple of PhDs. Yes. <laughs> so you got it. Well, but I do think, and I was, I was talking to my mother about that last night, um, I heard recently, some very smart person said that the, the most important skill of the 21st century would be the ability to unlearn. Wow. That that's the, the people who are going to be most successful are going to be the people who can unlearn things. Okay, so and I heard something very interesting too. This is the age of change, and we're moving to into a changing world. Okay, so instead of the age of change, there's change happening, and we have to learn how to live in it. Okay, what the new world will be like. And so I do talk about change all the time too, and trying to encourage young people to be very willing to adapt. And as someone you know, the senior of all the young people that I get the opportunity to meet, greet, and speak to on a regular basis, I too have to be willing to change and adapt. And I, I like what you're saying because you have to change. Learn? Exactly. It's about unlearning. You're right. Instead of... What is, what is it that you have to unlearn? Yes. And I have to get a lot of people actually now that you've coined this term for me to unlearn. <laughs> To unlearn things so that we can move forward. We have to move forward and we have to keep going. And whatever it takes, we have to keep the, the motion and the movement and the change happening. Otherwise, we'll be stagnant. I'll say, I know that the, the main thing I have to unlearn uh, is, uh, I guess we could summarize it as the, the, the patriarchy or uh, toxic masculinity. I grew up in a rural part of Maine. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> but I do have that impulse mm-hmm. on a near daily basis um, and have to, and this is what I'm currently working on unlearning, and admitting it out loud to people and recording it and letting them listen to it helps me. Um, I find that that helps me to do that. And I think that this is something that most men are going to have to, are going to have to unlearn. Uh, because, hey, you know, if the, if the patriarchy worked, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have all these problems, right? If there were no poverty in the world and there were no wars and all that, I'd be like, all right, guys, you, you're doing a great job. So maybe as women we have to unlearn, how do I even say this, so we don't have to walk around being in fear. Do you think you, do you walk around being in fear? No, I don't because I'm, I consider myself different, okay, because I've learned that I have to become fearless. Mm -hmm. It's what I learned. I learned that I get to be fearless because I can be. But there are a lot of women that walk around not like that, Mm -hmm. and they need to unlearn having fear and always being scared because you don't have to you got to have confidence okay you have to be educated you have to work at it 
And those are not unlearned things. They're things I want to learn and continue to grow into. Um, I think in confidence, uh, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, dovetails with, with the toxic masculinity a little bit. I do think, uh, and I've read some, some, some pieces recently about a Harvard Business Review article on how confidence was a useless business skill. And I was just like, you, have you ever sold anything? <laughs> yeah, and for women, that is not useless. No, that's not, you needed. There are four boxes sitting in my office on my desk. Uh, no, but the, the, I mean, the they go, and I, so I am a, I'm currently a WeWork member. You don't, we have WeWork here in Charleston, but you, I imagine, read the news. And, yeah, and heard of it. Mm -hmm. And one of them, and I've been, I've mentioned it a couple times, and I think that there should be a partnership between Girl Scouts and WeWork, where their Girl Scouts come in, and they go to each WeWork desk, and they, what does your startup do? What does your business do? How many cookies are you going to buy? <laughs> a great way to make them do it, but now they can sell them online. Hmm. Well, that's but I don't. The the door-to-door -door person, the person that. looks to look you in the eye, and because we, I mean, I think it is important that um, I have noticed a lack of confidence in some of my uh, female peers who have every reason to be considerably more confident than I am. Um, I once said I have a friend who I, I won't name, but uh, at one point we were both in between jobs, uh, and to me this was a great opportunity. <laughs> and to her, it was a disaster. She needs a new job. Mm -hmm. She's considerably more talented than I am. And DC is a town where if you're if you're talented and you have ten to fifteen years of experience and a network like we have, you get all the consulting jobs you want. Absolutely. And she didn't have the confidence to do that. That's so tough. She had to get. She's now working a regular job. And she really just I, I shouldn't be confident. She should. Is basically how that goes. I don't have. I have a BA in theater. And um, audio equipment, right? I, I have more than that. I have not no dearth of confidence, right? And it is a lot of why I'm able to do a lot of this stuff. I'm not the best person on paper to be doing any of this. But I you've chosen to do it. Exactly, you've chosen it. It works for you. Mm -hmm. You're a great communicator. So you have those abilities. You have the abilities it takes. You can sell things mm -hmm. because you can use your voice. And I'm trying to teach people to use their voices. But it's always someone better. Exactly. Just keep going. But I find that some women are always thinking, there's, you know, I'm not the best, so I shouldn't be the one to do it. I'll wait until I'm the best one. Right? Well, I'll wait until they invite me or they call me or they, right? Uh, and so, uh, and so it never happens for those people, by the way, who, who think like that, because what are you waiting for? And I learned that in life, actually, because I remember we went through a period and we kept saying, we'll wait to have children because we don't have any money and we don't this. And then we're like, wait, what are we waiting for? We may never have money. We don't know. We'll keep working at it, but let's go ahead and start. And so we did, and we're fine. And the kids were fine. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out great. It worked out for a lot of people. And you know what doesn't work out? Not doing anything. Exactly. Waiting forever? Never, that never works out. 100%. And I believe in doing. I'm a doer. And a connector. I love to connect people, and I like to find people that have things in common to bring them together when they have a cause that works that will work together. Um, so, uh, I have a question from, you mentioned briefly earlier on, and I wanted to follow up on it, uh, a conversation with your husband about what you would be supporting. Uh, you could have chosen uh, many, many things. 
<laughs> right? That the, when we're especially when we are when the, the the foundation of the conversation is to, is re- repair the world, mm-hmm. the entire world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to me, it seems you have uh, focused uh, mostly in your backyard here, um, and then I and on education, medicine, um, from some looks like some Jewish causes, uh, which is um, I'd, I'd say. Always conversations. Lots of conversations, yes. And he was a scientist and an inventor. And so in innovation... Yes, well, right, how to close it, the tail tie system. So things like that that involve innovation and creativity are really important to me. And so being involved at the medical university with the neuroscience, he wanted to change the patient experience, okay? And then he became the patient. So even more so, he wanted to see that experience change, okay? Because it was so difficult going through his illness. And so therefore, why not neuroscience? Um, Because the ability to help these doctors become creative has been amazing, and we brought an engineer into the mix. So there's an engineer that works in the department with the physicians, okay? So it's being creative differently. And the way I look at it, and the same with a project I'm working on at the University of South Carolina, one of the engineers that works for our aerospace company is embedded in a program at the University of South Carolina, the McNair Center, named after the late astronaut Ron McNair, um, in this incredible center that started out as a blank space and has now filled out, including with our engineer with intellectual property being developed, with R&D happening, with patents coming out of it. So things like that where people get the opportunity to learn because it's impacting students, the professors, our engineer, our business, other businesses, and bigger businesses because of the creativity and the innovation and the thought that's going into creating things to make this world better to make a device operate in a more efficient and effective manner. Okay, so it's a little bit different to do it that way. We invest outside of philanthropy in the research. Once we get the projects going, the philanthropy helps create the spaces and bring the people together and put the people in the room and bring in some of the machines that might be used. And then the for-profit side, we put money in to say, okay, keep doing this research. We're going to invest based on the, the the milestones that you create in this startup to create these devices for this kind of system. Okay, so that's another of my kinds of philanthropy that I absolutely love. Um, uh, another thing you support is um, the, the one area of considerable overlap uh, between you and my family's philanthropy. That would be Jewish studies on campuses. Okay. Uh,
according to my uncle's research, uh, Hitler did kill 35 of our relatives. Wow. Uh, and a number of others uh, actively. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, uh, the fact that they were here that doesn't seem to make it any better of a, of a story, right? Um, so uh, that, for her, that is a major, that, that's why that was important to her. I assume this is very similar um, uh, to you as well. I'm driven. Okay, by many things, and that's one of them. So yes, so I help always get my family to agree with me, um, but I wanted to create the Zucker Goldberg Holocaust Chair in Holocaust Education and Outreach. So we have a wonderful department in our Jewish Studies, but my husband was on the board that actually helped create the beginnings of the Jewish Studies program. It's 30 years old now. Okay, I mean, uh, at the College of Charleston. It's already 30 years old. It's That's like, where did the time fly? Well, most Jewish studies are much than that. Yeah, so we've done unbelievable things. So we also have a Southern, uh, a Center for Southern Culture, another um, local Southern family with deep, deep, deep roots, okay, generations of family so here. Gold Goldberg is my maiden name. Zucker oh, Goldberg as the Holocaust piece. Then we have our Center for Southern Culture named after the Pearlstein Lipov families who have deep culture here. Now we're creating a, a Center for Israel Studies. We want that to be more than just religious studies. We want it to be about things like the startup nation, the kind of work my son is involved in, the Technion. I just met the president of the Technion, Peretz Levy, who is, by the way, a Florida Gator as well. He got his PhD at the University of Florida. And he built, yes, he did for his PhD, and he built Cornell Tech with Cornell. And it just so happens, the president now of the University of Florida was the provost at Cornell when they were building Cornell Tech. So how cool is that that the two of them are friends? And I got to meet them at a University of Florida event a few weeks ago. And my son goes to the Technion every year. Um, and their tech transfer person just happens to be a guy named Benny Sofer, Israeli who also got his degree at the University of Florida, and we're in the top five in the country for tech transfer, okay, including the Stanfords and the MITs of the world. We are right up there. And University of Washington is like number one. It's amazing. In Washington State, I had no idea. I just learned all this last week. Uh, I knew we were up there. I knew about MIT and Stanford. It makes a little sense to me. Uh, I would guess that as um, public institutions, you have to be slightly more accountable uh, oh, okay. that you'll be hearing a lot more often that the, and so you have to be more responsive to current needs, whereas Colby might be able to float right for a little bit longer um, you know, based on because their, their donors might be you know uh, not as in touch uh, with current with their well our people want to know everything, and we as a I'm also a trustee besides a trustee, I serve on the foundation board, so right. that's the side that fundraises at us. And so I've learned so much that really helps me in terms of working with all the other institutions. I really get what we're trying to do. So our campaign to fundraise is aligned with the strategies that the board and the administration and the faculty have created around what do we need to achieve at the University of Florida to keep us moving and improving and getting better in what we provide our students and the excellence that we create. Okay, so we've worked to make sure that there's alignment and that's why I think we're able to do what we're doing in fundraising. So it's about students creating more opportunities for scholarships, creating more opportunities to have endowed professorships and amazing professors, which I know you appreciate, um, creating a bigger endowment. Robert E. Diamond, professor. There you go. 
creating endowment. Okay, you've got to have an endowment in today's world. And then the, the fourth pillar, we are working really hard to grow infrastructure because we need to grow um, the faculty. We need to grow the number of people with the endowed chairs, endowed professorships, um, the ability to come in and reduce the faculty-student ratio. But if you don't have the infrastructure to do all of these things and to do the research in the best and the brightest kinds of spaces that you must have to be able to do those things, none of it will happen. So that, that's kind of what our campaign is about. And so I've learned more than just about being the donor. I've learned about why we're doing what we're doing. And I basically did not want to be involved in the campaign unless it was aligned to what we're trying to achieve as a university. Sure. Uh, but then also uh, because there are some unique, um, there's, there's a conflict there that you may have heard about. <laughs> uh, and you know, to, 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 to try to deal with that. And obviously Jews have a, a somewhat of a special responsibility to do that and an interest uh, you know, in, in leading that, um, that conflict. Um, and, uh, and while we were focusing on that, which was a worthwhile thing to focus on, um, anti-Semitism rose every single year of my life uh, to the point where we are now the most likely to be targeted for hate crime. I have been beaten up for being Jewish many times. And the number one reason I get beat up. <laughs> I played yeah. hockey, so you did. Colby is known for hockey. Well, I, yes, I wouldn't have been able to play for. So I went to the Dickinson College. You did. Okay. And, okay. Uh, where the hockey is not as high caliber. Okay. But, I played but you played. Okay. Well, and, I've been, and you get into a fight every now and then. Uh, being beat up for being Jewish happened much more often. Okay. Uh, my son got beaten up for being Jewish, um, the one that's and, right and there. Ignorance is the, is the reason for it, and they, they, they tend to believe, like, they, they beat up because they think I killed Jesus, or that uh, I'm a secretly powerful banker who controls the weather. Uh, recently, one of my city councilmen in Maine, in D.C., uh, whenever I think of home, I think of Maine, but <laughs> yeah, in D.C., said, I don't know if he, he, he repeated this some sort of Rothschild myth, uh, and didn't even know that it was anti-Semitic. I do believe that he genuinely did not know what he was saying was, wildly anti-Semitic, and the sort of thing that gets me beaten. Um, so that hadn't happened in a little while, and um, learned how to defend myself at one point. Um, but um, uh, you, when I mentioned it, I saw you put your hand on your heart, and you clearly mm -hmm. have some concern about that. I do. Um, I, do. I don't, when I look at, you know, the, the Jewish, American, Jewish American community is, a, is, like I said earlier, a disproportionately uh, philanthropic in this country. Uh, has uh, connections, has many organ pre-existing organizations, including the Anti-Defamation League. Mm -hmm. uh, Great organization, actually. Uh, they are, and I think, and I don't think we should have, we shouldn't put it on one organization's shoulders to, to deal with anti-Semitism at the scale that and it has. And hate crime. Mm -hmm. so I think most people just don't, they'll even look at the numbers and they don't believe that it's, right, they could uh, you know, tell people I've been, you know, I've been the victim of hate crimes because I'm a member of a minority. Like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about, Dave? You're a white guy and privileged, and obviously you have no problems. Well, that does happen sometimes. Um, people look at us that way, and they say, well, because you're white, that still changes it for you. What and, experience? And, and we are. We do have white privilege. I'm sure you probably enjoy it on a daily basis, right? But, um, but it's a little bit different. 
uh, and I, my, I, I would love to live in a country that understood anti-Semitism a little bit better. Uh, and, um, you know, I, and I think that um, it's a very unique form of bigotry, uh, possibly because it's older than all the other mm -hmm. forms. hard to say what I do about it, but what I, I but no, no, I hear you. I support this Jewish studies program because I think it's important and because we do a lot of outreach and because we offer things to the community programs of all kinds, including Holocaust education, including other types of education that the community ought to know. Um, but also, I don't hide who I am, okay? So I speak about Tikkun Olam openly. Um, I, yes. Very much so. People know. Hey, my United States senators, one of them in particular, Tim Scott, called me up on Thanksgiving Day and said, Anita, I'm calling to say thank you for what you do. And I'm like, oh, wow, Tim, thank you for calling, and you know, I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and thank you. He says, I just want you to know I'm going to be performing more Tikkun Olam next year. <laughs> he did. He did. So, I mean, he does do it. I mean, look at what he's doing with the opportunity zones he's creating. Is he involved in this? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of his bills. And so he was just here focusing on what are the opportunity zones for South Carolina that fit into that bill that just came through. So I'm really excited because there's one that's not far from where we're sitting that um, is an area of town that is in such dire need of something like that. Uh, we have some great organizations going on down there. What do I do? I try to jump in the middle of a lot of different things. I want people to know me. I want them to know that just because I'm Jewish doesn't mean I'm not going to support an African-American project or a project for our school. Completely. And yes, exactly, the schools that he created. So I really care about these things, and I'm working um, with a variety of different organizations to try to create the change that's necessary for our youngest children so that they can have a different kind of life. Um, but again, not hiding it, using tikkun olam, it is about repair of the world, and I studied it with a rabbi, an orthodox rabbi. Um, I did an Eli talk once upon a time. I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube. It's being in the business of tikkun olam, because I do feel like that's my, part of what I do. And um, he and I... Well, you can. There are ways to be doing it and make a profit. That's what yesterday's theme was of this impact day. How do you make a profit and make impact? Okay, so I can do it through products, through my companies, through my businesses, through things I do for people. Um, but it's my obligation to do a lot of these things. Because I'm Jewish, it's my obligation. But it's also my obligation not to only perform it for Jews. It's about performing it for the world giving to all kinds of people, giving to all kinds of causes. And the way I view the world, I value people who value life. If there are people who value life, then I may consider helping them if they're doing the right kinds of things that deserve to be helped. Okay, and I think you probably understand kind of there's an underlying thought behind what I'm saying. It's about valuing life, not taking lives, making lives, making lives better and helping in any way that I can, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, Presbyterian, any, anybody.
Exactly. And I sat with J.J. Schachter from Yeshiva University and sat in front of an audience to have the discussion about Tikkun Olam and its meaning and how it is to be done by Jews. They do love that. Yeah. But I love that he loves it. He gets it. He really understands. And we have become really good friends too. not an area I really care to talk about um, from that perspective. I, I love Lindsey Graham. I think the world of him, I think the world of my other senator, Tim Scott, the two senators that we have here listen, they hear. Do they always do everything that we want as constituents? No, but for the most part, they at least listen and get it. And they do take some really good actions. And I've called Tim multiple times. I text with him. We have a really neat relationship. And I have thanked him because he's allowed his values to guide him. He is a very religious individual, as I am in my own way. And I love the fact that he can be guided by his values. And I've, I've told him how much I appreciate that, okay, in his work. Um, and that means a lot to me. And, yes, I support a lot of Republicans. I support a lot in this state. Um, I support people who are supporters of that other level. Uh, but... I support a lot of the local people in my state because I need my voice to be heard, okay? Nationally, I support Tim and Lindsay a lot because I want them to hear my voice. Did I, through the years, I, there were others I supported along the way, and they were not all Republicans. Yeah. But the key is I want to have the voice and I want to be heard where I need to be heard. And in this state, sometimes I need to be heard. Okay, and I do, and this is a really small state in the scheme of things. We've grown lately, but it's okay, and exactly. So you get it. Being from a small state, you want to have the ability when you pick up that phone and you call that person that they hear you. And I know I can call the governor. She is. And it's hard to know. Exactly. That's I think I know what I would do. I can sit very easy for me to sit here and say that I know what I would do, but um, she probably has access to information that I don't. 
And that's the other question. What did they know that we don't know? And we don't always know everything. But the thing is, you also have to sometimes take a stand about some things. And I know that there are times that I have to use that fearlessness and be willing to use my voice to take a stand. And I try to do that. And, you know, there are issues that have just happened in this country. I didn't want to get into the march, but I really support the young people and what they're doing. I so from every place in this country. My home state were there. My home state is Florida. So Parkland, Florida, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law live there, and they're my four nieces and nephews went to that school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. So do I care? I care deeply. They know those families. They know many. My brother-in-law is a pediatrician. He is. He treats so many of the students that go to that high school. I was appalled by the behaviors of some of my own people that I support here, um, thinking left-wing people were forcing our students to go stand in the hall and have the sessions. Well, I don't think that's the case. particularly uh, prescient of us to hire those crisis actors to attend that school in advance, I think. Very well done, the left, that they finally got their, finally got their act together. They're capable of doing that, then I'm not doing So anyway... <laughs> So I very much support these young people for taking a stand. I think it's good for people to hear that, you know, that, that these folks are getting called by folks like yourself. And because that's what I would, when I hear them saying stuff like that, stuff that that is that ridiculous. Uh, I, I, I like to think that they're getting angry phone calls. Right? And I can make, I'll make my own angry phone calls. And to some people, that makes a difference. Right? It's not going to make a difference. Not for Lindsey Graham's office. Lindsey is one thing, but. He might, it might make a difference for Lindsay or for Tim if I did call them on that. Now, Tim interviewed people in Parkland. He went down there. Yeah. Okay. So, I think that says a lot. He spoke to families. Um, I don't know if Lindsay, what Lindsay did. Well, I mean, I assume a lot of their supporters, they yeah. don't pay, you know, they gotta, and you can think differently than them. That, that's why I, I don't, I'm not envious of any senator, is when you have, when your opinion is different than the people who voted you in there. I'm also very proud of people like Rick Scott, who everybody was like, oh, Governor Rick Scott, Republican, he thinks this way. He took action. At least they made some changes. As did Marco Rubio. They took action. Okay? Marco took a chance. He did. And and Rick Scott, both of them took many beatings, but they did something right. They did something instead of nothing. Okay, and I so appreciate that. And one thing about the state of Florida, they invest in education, especially higher ed. They have worked so hard to make that state a fabulous place for higher education. And I'm really thrilled that I get to be a beneficiary as a trustee of what happens in the state of Florida. Uh, Because their government has chosen to help higher education. We don't raise tuition there. In this state, our tuition keeps going up and up and up in our public colleges and universities. Our legislature gets upset, but our legislature doesn't fund them. They get less than 10% of their budgets from the state, but yet they have to follow every mandate the state has. They have to follow procurement procedures, all kinds of procedures based on the state, and this state does not fund well. So, so it, those are things that are struggles for me in politics, okay? But that's why I want to be involved here in hopes that someday I might get these people to actually hear me. Mm-hmm. And there is a decent amount of overlap. I mean, you don't just, 
I think sometimes we think of them as uh, very, very separate from the nonprofit world. I mean, particularly because these are to be nonpartisan organizations, right? Um, and that the, the, so the politicians are over here doing this, and then the nonprofits are over here providing services and stuff. But that is really not. They are all. They're all in it together. They should be. Oh, that's interesting. He can vote, but it doesn't count. What's the point of letting him vote? I don't understand, but whatever. D.C. is a different place. Many advantages living in D.C., yeah. and I guess we give up the, the vote for <laughs> I can, on the other hand, like I may not uh, vote for anything, but I can go visit any of them. Yes, you can, and I think that's great. I go over there not as much as I did when I first went to town. And I've walked the hill. I've walked the hill. I've done that for different organizations, different universities, different causes. I think it's important. Um, for a time, we were a member of one of the business-related caucuses that would meet, the South Carolina State Caucus that would meet in, um, in the Capitol building. And um, it, it was more lobbyists, really, than anything. And it just, I'm like, why am I here? I don't need to be here. I can get to them if I need to. But we can't call ourselves lobbyists, and there's certain well, little things. Regulation of right. Lobbying, but then, but, I don't think but we're advocates. Needs to, you're not, not going to be registered as a lobbyist. Exactly. So but we're an advocate, yeah. right? I like to be an advocate for the yeah, things I believe in. Uh, and I think a lot of people are uh, shy on the advocacy because they look at that as politics and they think, well, I need to be, right? But you'll be far more powerful nonprofit and senator if you have strong relationships with the other. With the other. And, and also, you know, with philanthropy, like, I want to give my philanthropy to the places where the biggest needs are. Yeah. And am I going to give to the politicians? I'm going to give them some, but I'm really saving my bigger dollars for the, the bigger needs. Yeah. Okay? If I want to make an impact, I'll find a way to give a little more. But at the same time, I, I much prefer that I give where the needs are. I'd love for them to get involved and care enough to want to make a difference in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do. Okay. I'm not even looking. Okay. These are more softball type questions. Perfect. In particular, are there any major problems that you think the philanthropists a lot today could realistically solve? The key is how do we work together if we're going to realistically solve something. So, I mean, there have been some things that are close to being solved, like polio. And I'm a Rotarian who gave to, to polio, um, things like that. There are a lot of strides being made in different health areas. Have we cured them all? No. But we've certainly gotten closer. And I think the key is I'm looking at Joe Biden sometimes when I have to think about cancer and his moonshot. So I'm not sure what his real focus is. I don't know which thing he's trying to cure. But I love that he took that upon himself, okay? And I understand he's raised the money to do whatever it is he's going to be doing. So I want to understand more about what they're trying to do and what the real moonshot is. So have I. My old boss from my first job in D.C. works there. And I'll get this meeting. And I have friends who will get me the meeting when I'm ready. I the Hates campaign, which was run by the Vice President's office. And I got to meet him a couple times, so I'm sure he does not remember. 
And we do share something in common because he lost his son to a glioblastoma and I lost a husband to a glioblastoma. So I would really love to have that kind of a conversation to be able to say, okay, so in your moonshot, are there any pieces for that in it and solving it? Because if we could find ways to cross the blood-brain barrier, we are beginning to find some ways, then maybe we could begin to at least allow people to have a longer life and not immediately say, oh my God, I have a death sentence. Um, because sometimes you watch a person and you know that there's going to be this moment that this turn happens and you're hoping it won't. But sometimes it's so obvious that once that turn happens, you can't turn it back. And so how do we stop things like that? And I want to know what he's trying to do, really. I'm, I'm very taken by the idea of this moonshot. And um, anyway, I haven't pressed as hard as I could press to have the meeting, but I'm very curious. Some are. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have these meetings and invite people to give all their money and to sit down and talk. But what are they really doing? I know, and it's so hot. Yeah. And I don't want to say what I know about some people that are involved in that because it bothers me. Well, I think they both are probably hard in their own ways. Yeah. And I, so I don't want to be at that level. But see, here where I live, I get to leverage with Boeing. Hmm. Boeing can do a lot with their funds, but when I find a project and they find a project and we have an interest together, then together we can give and leverage our giving to make an impact on our youngest children, yeah, for example. Yeah, and I like to coordinate. I like to work through understanding needs of my community. I love that I still, I'm a life member of my community foundation board. I serve on the board. I represent a supporting organization and Coastal Community Foundation. Oh, wonderful. I bet they do. someone from like a community foundation, some random community foundation somewhere likes it and calls me and they would call. Community foundations are great for us to work with because they have all kinds of unfunded proposals. Well, they do. And, but they also have the ability to make things happen because they can bring philanthropists together. Great. Aren't you lucky? <laughs>
Well, obviously, we can stay in touch that way because that's a, a, a very important piece for both of us. Some of the greatest needs that we have here, again, are really all education. We are growing. We're growing very rapidly as a community. We, are, we have not just the city of Charleston, this whole region. There are three counties. Okay, It's considered Charleston the low country. The low country. It's considered Charleston, but it's Charleston, Berkeley, and Dorchester counties. We have a Volvo plant under construction. They're hiring 2,000 people this year. We have Mercedes-Benz building sprinter vans. They're under construction, going to be hiring 2,000 people. Not enough of any new anything. Okay, infrastructure is lacking here. There are pieces of new highway. Mm, not much of one. Okay, well, because if you came from the Columbia area, it depends where. They're fixing things. Yeah, they're fi that's for the port. That will be for the port. It is a way to get product out of this new part of the port that's being created. Okay, they um, they didn't want this neighborhood to be disrupted, and the neighborhood fought for their rights. And I give them a lot of credit for doing that. And they were able to get them to change the exits off the interstate. And now they're building this bridge that will come over into our interstate to be able to get um, trucks to either places in the upstate or to areas where there's rail waiting, whatever they may be dropping off, whether it's containers or whatever they're carrying. We have a very large port in this region that's really uh, an economic driver for the state. Okay, and we have two inland ports now. So things will go from this port directly to either the sort of Florence, South Carolina area. There's one up Dillon maybe. Um, that direction heading sort of towards Charlotte, North Carolina, and then we have another one that heads to Greenville for distribution to other parts of the country as well, north, south, east, and west, wherever. Um, and so those are some of the economic drivers. Well, I hope through your unfunded list that you will keep in touch because I would be curious if there are things you think that I might find interesting. Um, I like what you're doing. I love that there's somebody out there giving advice to people because sometimes you do write this grant that you put so much time and energy into and you don't know why. Why is this not getting what it deserves? And I think a lot of the good work that I get to see comes through our community foundation when it comes to grant writing and the ability to get good feedback and to have an understanding. I just read three grants for uh, up to $25,000, and I couldn't even vote because it was like, oh, my God, I have way too many conflicts to even put in a vote for one. I know who I want to get a grant of the three that submitted these larger grants, but I can't say because it would be I would be conflicted, okay, legally conflicted because I serve on one of those boards. So I, it was like, okay, I'm not voting for any of them because there's nothing I want to vote for other than that one, and I can't. Well, obviously, yeah, that's a problem that comes up a lot mm -hmm. with stuff. And we have evaluators who sometimes they tell me they can't even get feedback because they're on a competitive board or something. That's fine. I have plenty of evaluators. Right, and so that's a tough place. But I feel like in other sectors, they're not necessarily as worried about some of these conflicts. 
Uh, I don't, and sometimes I see these things, right, that even if you were to break that concept, no one would mind, and it would not be a problem, and the world would be a better place, but we're not, we're all going to follow the rules anyway. And, these, and I mean, the rules are there for a reason, and for all I know, it would go very poorly. And I'm not saying you should have, whatever. But I know that I've been in that situation before, and I just vote for the nonprofit. Well, what I probably will do is call the staff person that's managing the process and give her my input. I declare my concept. I say, mm -hmm. I, I do this, I do that, and I want to vote for this organization. Yeah, like, and I will. That's why I have to, do, I will have to declare board, it. We'll vote of confidence in that organization. It should mm -hmm. be the extra reason why, uh, why we support that. But, uh, well, anyway, thank you for saying nice things about my, my organization. It is a lot of fun what we do. We get to read a lot of good stuff. And, uh, and we and create a lot of good stuff, and I look forward to uh, continuing to grow it uh, and continuing to do interviews like this one, although I'm sure none of my future guests will be quite this one. Well, thank you so much, Dave. It's been a pleasure meeting you, and I will look forward to watching you as you change and grow and become and unlearn, yes, and become the more amazing unlearned person in the world, the most amazing one. It's a pleasure. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.